Mexico in San Cristobal de las Casas, and I'm talking to Tucker Walsh, an American documentary filmmaker, and nowadays he's a travel guide for the soul on a transformational journey. And I met Tucker while living in Pachamama, a community in the jungle of Costa Rica. Hello, Tucker, how are you and where are you nowadays? Hey, Joshua, I'm doing great, excited to be on and to, uh... Yeah, see where this conversation goes. Yeah, and where, where are you at the moment in the world? So right now I am on a beautiful grass lawn in a park in Portland, Maine. And I'm looking out at Peaks Island, which is this small, beautiful island off of Portland. And it's very interesting timing because I was actually born in Portland and I lived on Peaks Island when I was a baby almost exactly 32 years ago. So it's a very fitting place to be talking about transformation and healing and all the topics that we'll be exploring together um, back home at the birthplace. Yeah, it's always good to connect with your birthplace. I was actually in Maine a month ago because I did two, um, two ceremonies there and I really like Maine. It had a pretty European feeling uh, for me. Oh, really? Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I love it. For me, the smell of the salt water and the seaweed and the lobster and fish down by the the fishing docks it's like there's something very intoxicating almost erotic about it like it, it turns on my soul when i'm when i'm back here uh, what 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 makes it erotic it just feels like i i'm more alive it's like the the energy flow is um is moving more effortlessly when i'm here there's something about the landscape and the ocean specifically the lighthouses as well. Lighthouses have been a big theme, a big uh, visual metaphor in my soul journey. And so there's something about it that, that feels transformative, like a, like transformation just more effortlessly, effortlessly takes place here. Uh, that's, and what does the lighthouse mean in transformation? What's the symbol? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It means so. It means so much, and words will fail to put it into its full context because it's something that is beyond words. Um, but the way I see it is, lighthouses are these vessels for the transcendent, infinite light of God, of Source, of Spirit to come down and to manifest form, and to filter through the vessel of our beings and out into the world. Uh, as a as a guide uh, to help those that, that are feeling lost at sea, uh, home to the island within, which is uh, Thich Nhat Khan saying the island within, that place of inner peace, of inner stillness, of of, uh, of inner wholeness, of um, connection to self and to source. And so I feel like lighthouses for me are, uh, you know, they help illuminate a pathway uh, in the darkness and um, and guide 
that they guide me home to myself, which then allows others, um, that allows then me to be in the world from a place of service and help guide others home as well. And I like that uh, a metaphor, uh, helping people bring light to the, to the dark. And um, you are really interested in transformation because you mapped all transformation communities in the world, or at least a lot of them. So I'm really curious, like, what made you interested in transformation? When did this start? Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, well. Hmm. You know, I want to say it started when I was born, when I <laughs> transformed into a human being out of my, uh, the, the vessel of my mother and into the world as this body mind on this journey to, um, to you know, embody my soul on this planet at this time in human evolution and history. And so when I was very young, 13 years old, I, I got a camera for my birthday and I started to um, just photograph the world around me. I was lucky to grow up in a family that did a lot of traveling. And I went to Kenya when I was 13 years old for a month on a community service trip and started to photograph cultures that were so, so different from where I grew up. And what was most powerful for me was that I could sort of, I had the privilege of being able to, to see the world, to see places that many of my family and friends uh, never, got to, never got to see in person. And I could capture little moments of life, of little essences of these places and these people and bring them back to the States. And, um, and you know, like I, would, I remember showing my grandparents some of these photographs and their eyes would just light up and they're like wow this is what africa is like and this is what these people that you know we we've only sort of stereotyped and we don't know anything about and you're showing us such an intimate glimpse into their world and i can almost see their psych their psyches like being transformed just by viewing these photographs it was almost like it was almost like um an alchemizing effect where the world became different. The, the universe that was once previously thought to be known was now a different place um, through the medium of visual storytelling. And so I, say, I would say that was my first inroad into the art of transformation was through photography, through documentary storytelling. Wow. And did you, did you ask for that camera or, or did your parents think? No. You know, it's funny, Mike, I, I have a memory that my grandfather gave me that camera for my birthday, but my mom claims that she was the one that gifted it to me. So I don't know how to settle that one. But no, I was just, it was just a random birthday present. And uh, I fell in love. I say it was the first love of my life was the Canon Rebel T2i film camera. You know, just this very simple camera, but I, I became just obsessed with photography. It was more than a passion. It was really like a... Uh, devotion that's that's really cool that you found your devotion early on and um, if i read it correctly you also studied photojournalism yeah i studied photojournalism at the corcoran college of art and design which is about a block away from the white house in washington dc and my freshman year of college barack obama was uh, elected president for the first time and yeah i I remember storming the White House the night on election night, and uh, there was this all-night dance party in front of the White House. Uh, of course, George Bush was still in the White House at that time, 
And I was taking some photographs that night and I really felt like, wow, I'm seeing the history of the United States transformed before my eyes. Like this was a transformational moment for the country. And I was so lucky to be right there in the midst of it, photographing uh, history in the making. Um, and some of those photographs, I went on to win some awards and were featured in the museum museum in Washington DC. And it was all just super surreal at that point. I think I was 18 years old and um, my career was like beginning to beginning to really take off in a in a way that I only could have dreamed of. So that's that's what I really like about your journey. That when some people are passionate, a career starts out of passion instead of mm -hmm. like I apply for a job after university kind of career. Um, so what was your um, uh, intention? Like with making the pictures, could you ever imagine that they would spread already, or was that really were you really surprised? Hmm. I can't say I was surprised, but I felt really lucky, you know? I just felt, I felt really lucky, and I, but I also have memories of being maybe, say, 16 years old, and a lot of my friends were just kind of playing video games and goofing off and just sort of being, you know, normal teenagers and kids, and I was so, you know, I was in my room studying how to use Photoshop and obsessively working on my website and um, interning for a National Geographic photographer. So in many ways, I, I had the gift of having an early start to my career, a very early start. Um, and on the other hand, I realized I, uh, I don't know, I, I had a lot of pressure that was on me from a very early age that mostly I just put on myself. Um, and I think that shot me to success, you know, in a very in a very catalyzed way. But it also, you know, it didn't. It wasn't um, necessarily the easiest path in life. <laughs> I can I can imagine. I want to know more about that later. You said pressure mostly from yourself, but what other sources did the pressure come from? Yeah. Well, my grandfather uh, on my mom's side, he. Um, he grew up really poor. He grew up in an immigrant family with Portuguese parents. And he uh, started a small t-shirt company that ended up doing really well. And by the time I was a teenager and he gifted me that camera, he, um, you know, he was very successful. And he had this, he never really put direct pressure on me to, you know, be successful or, you know, you got to be a doctor or something like that. But he did have this, this story that he would constantly tell me, which is, Tucker, if you can get a good education, you can get a good job. And if you can get a good job, you can make good money. And if you can make good money, you can have a happy life. And it was sort yeah. of this very simple, um, for those that are familiar with spiral dynamics, uh, it's like a very kind of stage orange, modernist, capitalist, materialist um, view of the world. And it's true. Like, that's exactly what happened. I got a, I got a great private school education, thanks to my grandfather. I got a great job. I made a lot of money at a really young age and I lived a really good life. So nothing about that story was false, uh, but it stopped, it stopped being a true story around 27, 28 years old. And that's when I needed to transform my own life and rewrite my own story um, to come up with something that would serve my soul, uh, you know, at the end of, at the, it felt like the end of a chapter and a new chapter needed to be written. So I, I really credit my grandfather for instilling those mantras into me. Um, and I also credit myself for 
but having the courage to maybe write a new story, even one that wasn't as accepted or acknowledged by society at the time. Yeah. But I recognize that, and it's important that these mantras serve you instead of that they're running you, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And, and um, I want to know more about your film life, but let's zoom in on this transformation, like when we were 27, 28, like how did you rewrite your story or reinvent your story or what, how, yeah, what did happen at that age? Yeah. You know, it's, I would say that the universe rewrote the story for me. Uh, there wasn't much of a choice that I had in it. A lot of people say, oh, you're so courageous, Tucker, to have gone on this journey that you've gone on. But the truth is I was, I was feeling suicidal. I, uh, around, and I guess I was 27, maybe, um, maybe it was the very beginning of 2018. I uh, was at the height of my career. I was making, you know, half a million dollars a year and traveling all over the world, interviewing celebrities and sports stars and presidential candidates and flying first class and really just living this, this Hollywood dream as a film director. And, um, and it was amazing. Like, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, uh, it was an incredible life, no doubt about it. But I, I didn't, it was my only life. I'll put it that way. I poured 110% of my life, uh, blood, sweat and tears into my job. And so I was completely out of balance. I wasn't taking care of myself physically. I wasn't taking care of myself uh, emotionally. I was starting to have some um, kind of trauma and childhood stuff that was impacting my relationship of 10 years with my high school sweetheart and uh, our relationship was starting to go south. And, and I, I got to this point where I was thinking, well, what now? Like I, I've, I've won the awards, I've made the money, I have the big house in LA, I have you know, my beautiful wife. Um, like what, am I just gonna do this for the rest of my life? Like there has to be something other than this. And I, I wasn't, I just wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't deeply fulfilled. I was on the surface fulfilled. I wasn't deeply fulfilled. And so it got to a point where I had sort of two choices that were presented to me. I could either jump off the, the literal cliff and commit suicide, or I could jump off the um, metaphorical cliff and go on a death and rebirth um, psychoactive journey to sort of rediscover my soul and, and to recommit to um, a new a new path forward for my life. And luckily I, uh, I can't even say I chose, it's like the universe chose to, to have me jump off the metaphorical cliff. And, and I did die for sure. It just wasn't a uh, physical death. Luckily it was uh, a death of the psyche, a death of the soul, a death of, um, a death of everything in my life that I held on to, like my career, my partner, uh, my identity, all of it, all the masks that I used to wear, they all had to be um, burned in the fire of uh, the fire of transformation. So Thank you. for sharing with many, many paths, but um, let me know which one you'd like to go down. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your, your vulnerability. I think it's very well said, the literal cliff or the metaphorical cliff. Um, yeah. Suicidal feelings, like how how do they feel and when do you realize is it very clear when you have those or how does that work yeah
Yeah, I'm just remembering lying in bed in my uh, my home in in Los in Los Angeles in Venice Beach, and I hadn't shaved in many days, and my hair was all greasy, and I I remember uh, just crying and being too uh, heavy. I want to say I was too it was my physical body felt too heavy to move to get out of bed. Um, and at the same time, I had, you know, this flood of emails coming in for this job that was this, this career that everyone was so proud of me for having and, and said how lucky I was to, to have. And, and I felt that too, but I also felt like, I felt like death. And so, it was just this feeling of um, I, I actually can't visualize, I can't imagine how my life can move forward. And so it's like looking out into the black abyss. And at that point, there was no lighthouse. There was no hope. There was just no guide home to some future potential possibility of a life worth living. Uh, and I think I, I just had to sit and stare into that darkness until eventually a small like flicker of a light would appear in the background and then that flicker would grow a little bit brighter and a little bit larger and a little bit brighter and a little bit larger until um you know really years later when eventually i felt like i i arrived at that lighthouse that i was looking for oh wow that's uh it must be so difficult oh you, you had this high-flying career and at the same time, you felt depression, you were numbing yourself, your body felt heavy, uh, but you still have all these emails coming in. So how did you move from there? Did you start to read books? Did you call for support? Did you take some time off? Like how, what happened? Yeah, a, uh, a heroin addict saved my life. <laughs> Quite a literally. heroin addict? Yep, I what? was doing it. I was doing a documentary for the Truth Initiative, and we were interviewing this woman named Rebecca, and we filmed her detoxing off of heroin for four days. I and just Rebecca's saw that. I just saw it today, by the way, and I was really impressed uh, by the project. But yeah, anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that project was um, <laughs> transformational. Is an understatement. Life saving is more like it for both yeah. of us. We we sort of saved each other's lives. Um, the first day that she came on to set, she was actually suicidal. The night before I met her, she was um, leaning her head upside down and a friend was shooting heroin into her forehead. And she was saying to herself, I just want to die. I hope this one, I hope this injection kills me. And the very next day she walked onto our film set and while she was still high on heroin, I was interviewing her and just asking her about her life. And in between one of the, the takes, she looked at me and she said, Tucker, you don't look so good. And I looked at her and said, what? What are you talking about? You're a heroin addict that is detoxing and I'm just hotshot director and you're telling me that I don't look so good? And it was just one of those moments where it was as if the entire universe was speaking through the vessel of Rebecca as she shook me awake from my numb slumber. And I realized that she basically saw herself in me. 
she saw that I was a walking zombie that had giant bags under my eyes and was kind of just shuffling through life in a numb way and disconnected from my soul. And we became really close friends on this project and are still close friends to this day. Uh, she just celebrated her four years of sobriety. She's uh, married to actually somebody that she, um, another one of the uh, opioid addicts that she met through our project. And uh, they're living very happily in North Carolina right now with a, a newborn baby. And um, I, yeah, just, it's just crazy to think that, gosh, yeah, four years ago, we were both in that state and we met each other at the perfect moment. And she said the perfect thing to me that I, I just couldn't get out of my, my psyche. It was just rattling around in me. You don't look so good. You don't look so good. And so what I did was she told me about um, Al-Anon, which is a 12-step program. And I started to go to Al-Anon and work the 12 steps. And that's, that was really a breakthrough moment for me of beginning this journey of, of healing. Is that the same as AA or is it something different? So Al-Anon is for family members of those who struggle with addiction and alcohol. So I, my uh, wife at the time, um, Sam, she was my high school sweetheart. We were together for 10 years and she was diagnosed with bipolar two disorder and was not, uh, medicated at the time and was struggling a lot with um, using alcohol and other substances to basically self-medicate and and she was really spiraling downwards this was adding to the intensity of my depression and and everything that was kind of crashing and burning not just for me but also for the person that i loved the most in the in, in the entire world mm. so yeah. things, things came together because what i <clears throat> find interesting in your story when rebecca said you don't look so good it's sometimes you meet people that are mirrors for you where you are at that moment, right? Exactly, exactly. And she was more than a mirror. I mean, at first she was a mirror, but she became, I, I, would, I would use the word soulmate, you know? She, she clearly came into my life to deliver a message and I clearly came into her life to help guide her like a lighthouse, you know, home to a place of sobriety. And yep. we both did that for each other. And it just, the amount of miracles that unfolded during that project for many, many people on set, there were many people whose um, lives were changed that were you know, uh, on, on part of my crew and other people that we worked with. It was just one of those projects where there was something divine that was being orchestrated by the universe. That's, that's beautiful. Because I was wondering, because I've been looking at your work today and I saw that you've done two projects around addiction. So one with Rebecca and the other one with the 22,000 people that, that die yearly on overdose. Yeah. So mm -hmm. did you choose these projects because you had certain depression yourself or was it a coincidence that you got into this Rebecca project? The Rebecca one came a year after the first opioid project I did for the National Safety Council. And that one, gosh, I don't know how it first came to me, but I, I was very interested in addiction. I was very interested in what was happening in America where there was, um, you know, this epidemic of loneliness, of depression, of suicide rates skyrocketing, the opioid crisis, joblessness. And at the time, um, there was very much being talked about in the political, um, in American politics. And it, it seems like an issue that, um, that I was actually beginning to feel within my own psyche and soul. You know, here I was traveling all over the world and having all this success, but I felt very lonely inside, actually. 
I was traveling so much that I, I had very few friends that I would actually see and, you know, grow deep with um, in an intimate way because I would be gone for, you know, two months at a time. And so I would maybe see my closest friends at a bar one night for, you know, an hour and a half every couple of months. And it's a very, it's a very lonely way to live. And it was really eating away at me, this hyper individuation that comes in, in the modern society. Um, and so I think I could relate a lot to, to people who were also feeling uh, that sense of loneliness and isolation, um, albeit in very different circumstances. Yeah, yeah I, I recognize that too. And, and looking for a career and, and flighting in your work can also be a way to escape loneliness, right? Because you get validation and validation. Yeah. And, um, in terms of this 12-step program, which of course is famous, um what did you get out of it like what what are the key insights that you get during a 12-step program so i grew up in an atheist household my parents never brought me to church we were you know we weren't religious at all um our religion was pretty much I guess science and my mom you know was she went to yoga and read some spiritual books. So spirituality in general as a very basic broad concept was around me. Uh, but what I was looking for though, uh, what I didn't know I was looking for this, um, you know, Rebecca would say I had a God-sized hole that we both had God-sized holes in our heart. And um, I was filling that with work, with success, with, with money, with travel, with eating out at nice restaurants, all that type of stuff. But what I really wanted to fill it with was devotion for God, was a feeling of being connected to something larger than myself, to something that transcended my ego and also included my ego and included my life and included everything that was happening in my life, but it somehow held it all and was so much more at the same time. And the 12-step program really helped me recognize that I needed to give my life up to God. And when I say God, I'm not talking about necessarily a Christian God or a Hindu God or, or anything like this. I'm just talking about the source that gives rise to all that is. So in this moment right now, I'm looking out at the ocean. I'm looking out at my hands and my, the clothes that I'm wearing and the birds that are chirping and Jasper's voice on the other side of this technological device. And there, there's something that is at the source of all of those very diverse items and experiences and i i never really knew how to connect with that before but i i think my entire life i was searching for that through the lens of my camera i was searching for that love that kind of underlies all human experiences uh, and the 12-step program just helped take something that was in my subconscious and brought it to the forefront of my awareness and it helped me realize um that yeah that i wanted to open my heart to something um much larger than myself. That's that's very inspiring. And do you still call yourself an atheist or did you then transition into a religious person? No, I, I call myself an atheist in high school, I believe. I got into that for a while, but I had um, I had some really beautiful experiences take place in, in college. And um, yeah, now I would say I kind of, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a mystic, but I would say that I believe in the, the mystical traditions that are, you know, from many different cultures and backgrounds, but I, I sense that they're all pointing to the same thing. And at this point, it's just this moment right here, right now, however it's unfolding, this is God. 
for me. This is everything is God, <laughs> including nothing. That's also God. I'm I'm um, currently reading a book that you might like. It's called Inner Path to Outer Space. Mm. It's about spiritual experiences and also plant medicines. Mm -hmm. And they actually say that all the different religions, they kind of say the same thing, right? Also the things that you are mentioning. And um, I read one article or I scanned one article of you today that is called this. Um, can you elaborate a bit what that means? What, it, what was it called? It, I think it's called this, like this moment, this thing, like this now, this nothingness. Ah. Well, I actually have a tattoo on my left forearm that says, this is it, <laughs> with a capital T, this is it. Ah. And what that means to me is that even in the Christian traditions, there's sort of, a, and I, I don't think that this is what Jesus or the original Christian mystics were intending to communicate. Um, necessarily but there's this belief that heaven is something that is not here right now it's something that is out there far away it's some place that you have to get to and you know i just spent a week in a silent retreat at a buddhist monastery based in the zen tradition and, and even there there's this notion that um you know we're in the the prison of the mind and we're enslaved to the psyche and the human ego and we need to free ourselves in order to find nirvana and we're currently trapped in, in samsara and I think that there's that's all a um, true story in the sense that it is a story that is arising right here, right now. And so therefore, it's real. It's as real as any as anything else. It's as real as the wind on my face. But um, it's also, I don't think the ultimate truth, so the words get a little tricky here, but my, my experience, my lived experience, my understanding um, beyond the intellect is that this right here, what is whatever is unfolding and whatever dimension of reality this um, experience might be filtered from, whether it's the human ego or whether it's from a sense of soul or whether it's from the source of all being, whatever is happening is exactly what is happening. And therefore, it, it's the entire universe. Like this is the universe. This is the world is right here, right now. Right here, right now. And um, this is this is it. Is that a tattoo that you got recently or was it longer time ago? It was a few years ago. I've had a number of um, psychedelic and plant medicine journeys over the past four, four and a half years. And then I've done six silent meditation retreats and a couple of vision quest ceremonies and the 12 step program, reading a ton of different books about non-duality. And so it's really the combination of also experiencing deep grief and deep loneliness and having to kind of um, deconstruct the psyche. And then also I've been studying developmental psychology a lot. So all of these are um, ingredients that have led to, I guess you could call my current framing of the world. Yeah, I, I'm really uh, inspired by that. And I, I want to zoom in you said nirvana versus samsara it's kind of nirvana is like enlightenment and samsara is like also life with daily desires and distractions right but if you make that very yeah. if you make that very pragmatic because you we still live in a certain world how do you apply that does it mean you withdraw from certain addictions or work or social media or like what does that practically mean for you yeah the way i would in this moment, I, I think if you asked me in 10 minutes from now, I'd probably have a different answer. In this moment, what's arising 
is a sense of them being archetypes. So samsara could be an archetype for the parts of us that feel they are pulling us away from a sense of deeper connection to source, a sense of deeper presence and the unfolding nowness, uh, a sense of our disconnection from our soul even. Um, and even if we wanted to bring it into psychological terms, we could say it's the parts of us that are um, clinging to attachments or causing suffering. And I would say nirvana could be in an archetype for the sense of flow, the sense of wholeness, the sense of being at ease, of being um, surrendered to uh, the mystery, the, the, the great unfolding that is beyond us, but also a part of us at the same time. Um, and so for me, when I, when I feel out of balance, when I feel like there's some friction or stuckness in my, that presents itself in my world, I first acknowledge it as a gift, as a blessing, as also a part of God. And then I, I maybe sometimes use some of these archetypes that are beautifully presented and many mythic uh, stories, many of the world's wisdom traditions. And um, depending on, I see them all as different medicines and they all are kind of like a different note of the keyboard. So depending on what my psyche needs to heal, um, to hear in order to heal, I, I, uh, I sort of like pick and choose the right medicine for that moment. I, um, I like that. And you say the, the, the surrender is more part of nirvana and then the clinging attachment is kind of samsara. Well, I'm curious in your transformation, you said at some point you made half a million dollars a year, you had a high flying career, but nowadays you still have bills to pay, right? There's still practicalities in life. Mm -hmm. How do you apply this surrender while still like dealing with practicalities? Uh, it's a lot easier when you have a when you have a savings account. That's for sure. <laughs> so I've, I've been very lucky. Um, I donated about a third of my savings by the time when the time I quit my job. I, I felt uh, actually a lot of guilt and shame for working for corporations that I, I didn't really ethically or morally support, but I chose to put those ethics behind me in order to. Um, you know, get a good paycheck, excel in my career. And also a lot of the stories that I told, even if they were for Pepsi or for Walmart, they were beautiful human documentary stories of real people that were having, you know, um, very moving transformational experiences. And so I, I sort of justified it in my mind at the time that I'm telling beautiful stories. And if a brand is paying for that, you know, the, the story itself outweighs the harm of supporting this brand. And I, I probably have a different analysis today than I would at the time, um, but that was somewhat my rationale. So I, I, I gave a lot of my money away to different um, organizations that uh, helped support the very, for example, I did a, a series of um, soda commercials in Latin America where the obesity rates are skyrocketing. And I, I felt just so much guilt and shame about this. Um, so I, I tried to, give back basically the money that I made from those projects to organizations working on food security and nutritional health uh, in Latin America to try to essentially undo the, the harm that I had caused. Um, I don't think I came anywhere close to doing that, but it was at least a gesture. That's, um, that's super cool. I don't know, have you seen the movie Into the Wild? Oh my gosh, Jasper, that's my favorite movie. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think he... So you donated a third, but I think he he gave away all his money and then went into the wild. But it's a certain similarity, right? Extremely similar. And so I, I the other third of 
my money I decided to put um, just towards paying for different retreats and ceremonies and um, spending time in intentional communities and uh, therapy, um, basically things that would heal my inner world so that I'll stop, that I would <laughs> stop or reduce uh, harming the outer world. And so I really saw that as an investment in my soul that would eventually allow me to give back in a way that would help um, heal others. And then the last third of that money um, basically went to just paying my, my daily living expenses that I've been surviving off of for the past three or four years now. And I'm, I'm at the point where I do need to start um, making money. I recently got a coaching certificate and um, um, I'm working on a big uh, intentional village project in Bali right now to help come up with a community constitution. And so I was hired to work on that. I'm only making a very small amount of money, but it is something that's beginning to come in. And I'm excited to see how my uh, finances begin to um, take off again in the, in, the, in the year to come. Yeah, but that that's cool. So you were very intentional about your, your money, a third to charity, a third to intentional communities, personal development, and then a third for your savings. And um, I'm also curious, like this this metaphor with into the wild. For the past few years, you have been able to live on savings. You visited certain transformational communities. You learned about the Enneagram, I know. Can you share a bit about the things that you have experienced and the things that that kind of supported you in this journey? Yes, that is a very big question because I've been really lucky to dabble in so many different modalities and traditions and experiences. You know, ever, like I said, when I was a kid, I, I would travel a lot and explore the world through the lens of my camera. And I, I, I think I, I took that same energy and intention and just applied it to the healing and transformational world. So I've I've swam through a lot of different, uh, a lot of different circles. Um, are there any in particular that you're yeah. most interested in? We can narrow it in. I think you're right. It's a big question. So the transformation communities you created categories. Mm -hmm. you probably categorize your journey. So category one could be community. Category two could be courses. Like what? What are the big categories within this journey? Great question. If I look back over the last four years, let's say, there's a number of things that immediately jump out as being the most potently transformational. One is grief, grief work. It's uh, separating with the love of my life after 10 years and realizing that I didn't know how to actually love myself mm -hmm. and that I was codependent on my partner, Sam, for love. And having to grieve the loss of the dream of our lifelong relationship together, the dream of starting a family together, the grief of no longer waking up next to the person that knew me the best and the one that I felt safest with. So the grief was just uh, gut-wrenching. There were times where I thought I was gonna die because I couldn't breathe because I was just crying so hard. Um, so that was one of the most potent experiences that brought me to the, the depths of my soul and really opened up my heart. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a path, but if, if, it, if it lands on your doorstep, grief is gosh, yeah. probably the most powerful psychoactive experience that I can imagine. And I think ending, ending a relationship is often a trigger for these types of journeys, right? 
Yeah, yep. It's a form of death. You know, all endings are a form of death. Um, yeah. Not everything has to be a physical death. But it's interesting because the Sam that is alive today that I, I still occasionally, you know, talk to and connect with, I'm going to see her family because they live in Maine. She's, um, she's not the same person that I knew and dated and, and was fell in love with. She's her own new, beautiful version of herself. But I don't um, even like fully recognize that person anymore. And so in a way, the Sam, Sam did die, you know, a different Sam is alive today. Yeah. Um, the second, the, the second pathway, uh, transformational pathway, I would say with my, my vision quest work with Bill Plotkin. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, Bill Plotkin is his name, and mm -hmm. he runs an organization called Animus Valley Institute. They do all sorts, it's a Jungian-based depth psychology school, and they run vision quest ceremonies and dream work uh, workshops, and uh, it's all about connecting with your soul and with the soul of planet Earth in order to um, basically go through a death, rebirth, resurrection process. And once one comes through the other side of that, they're able to get in touch with their soul purpose, um, which is the, the gifts that they're here to bring to the world. Um, and I did a couple of years of work with through Animus Valley, and it was really extraordinarily psychoactive. I, I read Bill Plotkin's book, Nature and the Human Soul, when I was still working as a film director. This is around the time I, I did the opioid project with Rebecca. And this book is a developmental psychology book that talks about these different stages of life that, that we can grow, grow through. And I realized at the time that I, I, I reached the end of a stage of life, which was the, the late adolescent stage. So it's the stage that most of modern Western pop culture celebrates. And to go beyond that stage requires the total death, the total ego death, the total surrender to the universe and a, a complete metamorphosis of who we think we are. And this, this process is not supported at all by the larger society. In fact, it's, it's, um, yeah, in many ways, it's, it's uh, pushed back against. So it's like the whole force of the universe is, is sort of preventing folks from going on this journey. And at the same time, I felt like God was, was leading me through it the entire time. So it was a very interesting paradox. And the, the vision quest, uh, what I know, what, what I think I know from that is that it's based on indigenous rituals. And it's also, it's about not eating and drinking for a few days, right? Yes, so there are four days of fasting, and uh, five, was it five days of soloing in nature, and so that meant we had no tents, and we we're all there was a group of maybe fifteen of us, and we all had to scatter out over a couple of miles of territory, and we were completely alone. Um, and the, the the first vision quest I was on. It was in January in Southern California, and it happened to be frigid cold and downpouring, raining, and super windy. And everything got completely soaking wet. None of us had the right clothing because it was much colder than anyone expected. Uh, it was brutal conditions, and we were fasting, so our bodies are naturally a lot colder than we would be otherwise. Um, and it was extraordinarily challenging. I can. I can imagine that that's very challenging. Is it something that you recommend me doing? Because I've never done it before. I could not recommend it enough. It's um, 
period. I could not recommend it enough. That's all I have to say. You know, I told my parents if I if I die early, um, you know, I God forbid, but I would want all my savings to go to Animus Valley to help provide scholarships for people to to have these fishing quest experiences because it it truly it truly is just an incredible journey, and I think that it's so necessary for humans, especially folks our age that spend a lot of time living in cities and maybe have corporate jobs and are on their computer a lot to actually be fully immersed in nature and to use nature as a form of therapy, to use nature as a form of reconnecting to ourselves, to our souls and to source itself. I, yeah, I think it's some of the strongest medicine that our society could use at this point. Oh, that's amazing. I will check out the, the website and add the fishing quest uh, to my, my list of experiences. Awesome. Um, so, brief fishing quest. What's category number three? Category number three, I would say, would be psychedelics. Psychedelics. Um, oh, wow. My very first psychedelic experience was 20, the beginning of 2018. It was a ketamine assisted therapy session in California where it's uh, ketamine assisted therapy is legal there. And it was extremely scary. I got this ketamine from a pharmacy. I thought, oh, this can't be anything. I'm sure it's not that powerful. And I go into my therapy office and I take the four lozenges and all of a sudden my entire world is completely disoriented. And I, I had never done any type of psychedelic before. And I just had no idea how strong it would be. And my, my ego was fighting it the entire time, which is the exact opposite thing that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to surrender, right? And um, I felt like I was stuck inside of a pinball machine in an arcade and that everything was fake and flashing lights and artificial and there was no way out and there was blood coming out of my therapist's eyes. And what I realized was a, well, <laughs> so the day after that ketamine assisted therapy, I flew to Mexico and went to uh, Herdaya and did my first 10 day silent meditation retreat. So I had 10 days to sit with this awful, scary, destabilizing experience and the only way i could make sense of it was that it showed me exactly what my life was like at that point my life was being lived on the surface it was like a game that i was playing everything was fake and flashy and artificial and i felt like there was no way out and i felt like even you know like even my therapist couldn't help me there was like blood coming out of their eyes and not even my therapy not even the therapy room was safe and it really showed me exactly what I needed to see. Uh, and exactly, it showed me also how attached to control I was, how unwilling to, to let go and to surrender and to trust the universe, to trust um, something beyond myself. It's a, it's a big one, huh? once you realize that you can let go of, uh, of control. And um, yeah, psychedelics, are you that the ketamine? And what else, uh, what, what other experience did you have in psychedelics? So a couple months, I want to say it was a couple of months after that, I had my first mushroom experience. And you know, it came two days after Sam and I decided to separate officially. Mm -hmm. So my heart was already completely torn open and like all my walls were just down from grief. And then I, I had this mushroom experience and I was just, I mean, I, I died, like took her, ceased to exist. It was a complete ego disillusionment and dissolvement. And um, the, the one thing, time and space ceased to exist. It was like, 
it, it was extraordinary. And the one message that came uh, at the end of the experience was um, this voice, I, I'll say it's the voice of God said, Tucker, you're going to forget everything that you're, that you experienced during this trip. But just remember one thing, everything is perfect. And no matter what, whatever you do, get this tattooed on your left arm so that you never forget that everything is perfect. And that was sort of the one big takeaway from that experience. Um, and I have a tattoo on my left arm that says everything is perfect. <laughs> ah, so that's a different tattoo from the this is it one. Yeah, that, that was, um, this is it came after everything is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so my tattoos are all sort of my, my cheat codes to uh, the universe, my reminders of uh, my deepest truths. That's uh, that's fascinating. I've been dabbling into psychedelics the past uh, two years, and it really helped me also with, with trauma relief and accessing certain emotions that I couldn't access otherwise. But how would you describe the main benefit of psychedelics versus other healing modalities that don't involve, let's say, uh, yeah, things that you use? Yes. So as I mentioned, I was lucky to really dabble in a whole array of different healing modalities. And I'm, I can't say that I consciously, consciously did that. I didn't have some sort of map that helped guide me through that process. It was really mostly intuitive and by the grace of God. So I, I did a lot of therapy, about two years of therapy. I did two years of um, work with Al-Anon I did um, tons of different workshops like ISTA, International School of Temple Arts, which is a trauma, trauma healing program through sexuality. <coughs> Excuse me. I did a number of um, programs at Pachamama. I did the stuff like nonviolent communication and different types of, um, yeah, just like different types of conscious relating workshops. And Endless. I have a list of like 40 or 50 different things that I did. And one, a few, a couple of years ago, I came across integral theory, which really helped me make sense of the journey that I come across, uh, that I've gone through and was in the middle of at that time. Is that and the I, I helped, Ken Wilburn? Yeah. So that's by Ken Wilburn. He has this very simple phrase called wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. So waking up is about waking up spiritually to our true source. It's about, you know, it's what a lot of people go to meditation retreats. It's about finding that, that non-dual part of us. Um, growing up is about developing our ego through different stages, different worldviews, and uh, coming into greater and greater perspectives and having more and more capacity to hold more of the world in our center of care um, in our hearts and to see from different vantage points. And cleaning up is about working with our shadow, working with trauma, working with um, that that might we might be unconscious to, that which is holding us back from being our, our full, you know, whole selves. And finally, showing up is about coming into contact with our, our, our gifts, our purpose, our mission here on earth um, in this lifetime and being of service to the larger world. And so I, I really have dabbled a lot in all four of those different modalities. And 
and like I said, I think I, for the most part, I, I just got really, I got really lucky um, because I, I, what I see is a lot of people that find one thing, they find ayahuasca or they find silent meditation retreats or they find talk therapy and they just kind of keep going at it at time after time after time again, sometimes for years or even decades and no judgment there. I mean, I am not in their shoes. And so I, I can't actually say whether that's healthy or not, or whether that's serving their souls or not. Um, but from maybe what I see from the outside or what I'm perhaps projecting onto people is a, um, is that people kind of find their comfort spots with this one modality. And, and what I recommend is like, keep pushing yourself, keep feeling afraid. Like if you're feeling, if you feel afraid when you go into these different types of healing modalities, then I think you know you're at your gross edge and you know that you're about to, to do something that could have a very powerful and hopefully transformative effect. Now, obviously you don't wanna be so afraid that you're gonna re-traumatize yourself or, or have some form of regression. Um, so listen to your intuition and, and really trust uh, the, the, the wisdom of the, the elders and the councils and the support systems that are around you. Um, but if you go into something and, you know, like an ayahuasca journey or uh, therapy and you're not afraid, you're just kind of like, oh, I'm used to this, I'm familiar with this, then I, it maybe it's time to move on and try something else. So it's important to stretch a bit your your comfort zone and face your fears. And um, is is the integral theory, is it then the fourth category of your, your journey? <laughs> yeah, that's what, uh, that's, I, I don't know if it's the fourth or none of these are necessarily chronological, but studying developmental psychology in general has become a, a massive part of my life the past two years. Yeah. I've always loved psychology. I've always loved, um, understanding the human psyche and how different people interact. I love traveling to foreign countries when I was younger and even today and just seeing how different cultures experience the world, make sense of life, uh, how different belief systems interact and sometimes clash. Uh, I think it's very helpful for understanding stuff like politics and business and um, the different culture wars that are out there. So I'd recommend uh, for folks that are interested looking into spiral dynamics or integral theory. Uh, and right now I'm doing a lot of work with Stages International, which is an ego development model that combines integral theory, Sri Aurobindo and Suzanne Kirk-Reuter's model. Um, it's very, very powerful, powerful work for me to understand um, yeah, how the human ego can progress through different stages and also how all the previous stages, you know, we transcend and include all that we evolved through. And so all the parts of me going back to when I was just a newborn baby, um, and didn't even have a sense of self yet, all those parts of me are still within me. And at different times, different parts of them are activated. And the environment that we find ourselves in, the people that we're around, um, often activate different parts of us. So you can see, oh, when I'm home visiting my family, I'm sort of a different flavor of Tucker than I am when I'm at Pachamama with Jasper. And even at Pachamama, when I'm hanging out with Jasper, I'm a, there's a different flavor of Tucker that comes out than when I'm hanging out with, you know, Irina or some of my other friends. Yeah. And so, so to you... begin to have awareness to these, to how we are not just one person, we are not just this fixed identity. We're actually this very um, ephemeral, uh, ever evolving, kind of constantly shape-shifting consciousness that is moving through life um, like more like clay than a statue. I think that can be really actually freeing and activating. 
And I was curious if you can talk about the development of psychology, is there any a part of that or is it something different? Yeah, and the Enneagram is included in integral theory as a, the part of the typologies. So everyone, according to the theory, everybody has a typology that they're born with. And it's, there's a little bit of debate as to whether you say you stay with the same typology through your whole life or if you can um, change your typology as you grow and develop. Um, what is your typology in Enneagram? In the Enneagram, I'm the Enneagram one, which is the perfectionist, the do-gooder, the one that likes to be uh, moral and that likes to teach and you know help others. Um, and my two is, uh, I'm a two wing, so the two is the helper. Ah, so you're a perfectionist and a helper. And um, I'm because I'm researching this Enneagram now and in every typology, there's kind of nine stages of development, right? Um, so what, what insight did you get from this Enneagram, for instance, that changed your life or that you could apply to your own life? Yeah, just to be clear, you were saying that with the Enneagram, there's nine stages of development. Is that, did I hear you correctly? I think within each typology, there are stages of development, right? Ah, uh, I see. Um, yes, depending on different authors write about it in different ways. So the one, for example, can um, there's like a whole scale of what does an unhealthy one look like and what does a, you know, what does the Dalai Lama look like if he is a one, you know? And so, um, but that's, these aren't like actual things. All of these things are constructs. All of these things are just different ways to kind of carve up consciousness and um, again, present some archetypes, present some lighthouses essentially for, um, for how we want to evolve and move forward. So what I recommend is that people study astrology and the Enneagram and uh, Myers-Briggs and human design and gene keys and whatever one like really lights up their souls or they feel intuitively really drawn to. I, I recommend just going with that for now and maybe for a couple of years, it'll really serve you. And then you'll kind of uh, grow out of it and, and pick up another one like the Enneagram and, and um, go from there. So I see them all as like vessels that help us get from one island to the next on this journey across the ocean. Yeah, that's good. So it can serve people until maybe they got a lot out of it and then you can move to another one. Exactly. And um, I like these categories. Are we finished or category five, like like communities you visited, for instance? Yes. So yeah, we can, we can jump to communities. That's been a big part of my journey, especially over the past couple of years, but really for the past five years, I've been visiting different communities. I believe it's been about 25 that I've visited around the world. These are different intentional communities. Some are eco-villages, some are um, medit silent, you know, meditation retreat centers or monasteries. Um, some are more like plant medicine retreat centers. And what I found is that all of them have something about them that I find just incredible. Like such, they're each such a gift and such a beacon of hope um, to me for what, could be a future possibility for humanity you know right now these are like tiny little bubbles that are few and far between um my sense is over the next decade and certainly over my lifetime that these communities will actually become the norm that more and more people will find themselves living in them until they just form the the basis of what we call society and i think that will probably take longer than my lifetime, but I sense that we're going to see a massive explosion in that movement over over the coming decades.
And what's the central theme? Is it more nature-based living? Is it more community-based living, like spirituality? Like what's the, what do we shift towards? Well, that's the beauty is that there, there can be so much diversity. So maybe to give an example of that, I can talk about the project I'm working on in Bali right now. It's, uh, it's called Nuwanu. And they have this giant piece of property. It's currently under construction right now. There's capacity to have up to 2,000 people there. So it's really an intentional village more than, more than an intentional community. And the idea is that there'll be many different themed camps that are within this one village. So there'll be different tribes, you could say. And maybe one of the tribe are mm -hmm. um, monastic monks. And another tribe are surfers. And another tribe are cryptocurrency, you know, Web3 people, another tribe or permaculture enthusiasts. And each of these different tribes can find their people, you know, they can find the ones that they really cohere with. Um, while at the same time, everyone is living together in this one larger shared intentional village um, that all has some basic, they all agree to some basic principles and a, grace, a basic mission to live regeneratively in harmony with with each other and with the planet wow that's so cool and you just joined it as a what role do you play in this in this project yeah so they hired me and a team of four people to create an open source community constitution um so this document would outline everything from conflict resolution to the governing structure to rental policies, um, how to you know bring in the right people to the community. So, what we're what I've been doing over the past month and a half is uh, interviewing the leading leading people at all these the biggest communities that are out there: Findhorn, Tamara, Oroville, Pachamama, Punta Mona, uh, all these communities that are all over the world. Many have been around for about you know twenty years or so, and we're learning from the world's experts on community and not just experts like people that have studied intentional communities but people that have actually lived it and embodied it in their lives people that have poured their their blood sweat and tears into making these places um you know the the successful attractive communities that they are today and what we want to do is take all of their wisdom and basically pour it into this document that we can then make open source and available to others that want to start these communities so that people don't need to reinvent the wheel. They don't need to start from scratch. They don't need to learn from, you know, go through 20 years of um, trial and error. They can hopefully hit the ground running, um, you know, in a really strong way. And what are the key principles of thriving communities? Like what, what, how would you start? <laughs> That's the, that is the, that is the million communities question, my friend. Uh, ah, I for one, I would, yeah, the, the big learning that nearly, this is pretty much universal, I believe every single person we, in, we interviewed said that conflict is the number one thing that creates, um, that, that makes communities fail. And basically egos clashing. And, you know, it's interesting, it's not surprising because we come from this hyper modern individualized society where we're all used to having our own apartments and paying our own bills and cleaning our own dishes. And um, maybe we live with one or two roommates uh, at, at most. And then we go to living in these communities and all of a sudden we're living with hundreds of people and you have hundreds of different uh, personality types and people with hundreds of different types of trauma. <laughs> 
uh, different mm-hmm. developmental levels, different backgrounds and ethnicities and different cultures and different religions. And all these people are smashed together in this small bubble and they all have to figure out how to get along. Um, sometimes for the first time in their lives after they have patterning for most of their lives of living alone. So it's actually very reasonable and understandable from my perspective why it would be such a challenge. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of people are perhaps maybe a little bit naive going into living in a community and uh, underestimating how much, um, how many challenges come with just getting along, essentially being like amenable humans to one another. And um, so having a really strong conflict resolution system in place that everyone can agree to, that can invite people to take responsibility for their own emotions, for their own um, you know, inner well-being, while also having different uh, wisdom councils and different types of mediators that can help resolve conflict if it gets to that is super, super important. And ironically, a lot of communities told us that they didn't, they didn't really have those systems in place until shit had already hit the fan. And by that point, it was too late. That's, uh, I can imagine that conflict resolution is really uh, important. I heard uh, Pachamama, someone told me that conflict often has to do with power, money, or relationships. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? Are there also other things? Yeah, there's a way that I could, I mean, you could boil everything down to power <laughs> if, if you wanted to. I would say, I don't disagree with that, but maybe I would have just a simpler explanation, which is that um, tension is what creates creativity, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. t- two things coming together is what makes life life. Uh, yeah. Otherwise it would all just be one thing and it would all just be a white canvas, a blank canvas. And so I feel like conflict is actually a gift in disguise. It's like a blessing from the universe that's disguised as a, a trickster and devil maybe. And um, perhaps because we grow up in a society that is somewhat afraid of conflict. And you know, even like we watch pro wrestling on TV and it's all fake, it's all this action. And you know, we, um, so we're a little bit, I would say, uh, we like hide from conflict or we we pretend that, you know, only our side is the right side and like we need to be victorious if there is conflict that arises. But the way that I look at it and the way I would invite maybe listeners to begin to perceive it if they're not already is that conflict is an invitation to grow and evolve and to psychoactively transform to become um, bigger to have a bigger capacity to hold others regardless of where they're at in their own journeys. So conflict is actually really important for growth and not something to avoid, but something kind of to embrace and to learn from. It's, a, it's something to lean into. It's something to um, not necessarily create unintentionally, but when it does arise, because it will arise, that's just inevitable. It's, uh, it's an opportunity to say thank you and to see the other person as god as a as a as a blessing that is there to help that person become the best version of of themselves that they're capable of being and also i think it's a great opportunity to find compassion for ourselves you know like wow there's a there's a little boy in me that's totally triggered right now and is feeling really afraid and is really uncomfortable 
and just wants to hide and crawl in bed and or scream and shout and you know kick a chair or something like that and to be able to love the inner parts of us that are feeling out of harmony and that need attention i think that often can be such beautiful work in itself um, even if the conflict never gets resolved with the other person yeah no i can definitely relate to that when in my interactions when there's certain conflict or triggers that's a clear sign that there's something to, to look into and next, next to conflict, what's the other principle for thriving community? Then next to conflict resolution system. The other principle, I think, is to have very strong principles, ironically. It's to, have a, <laughs> it's to have a mission, to have something to stand for, something to die for, something to live for. Like, why does this community exist? Why is it important? Why does the world need this place right here, right now? Um, and often I think these communities can come together and say, you know, we want to live sustainably and we want to, um, you know, live in harmony with one another. But what does that mean? Those are just empty words that, that there's no juice to that. There's nothing alive and saying we want to live sustainably. And so what I would recommend is that community is really too broad, uh, right? It's too sorry. broad. It's too broad. It's, it's too, too broad general and everyone these days wants to live sustainably that's that's not a reason to start a community and so what is some, what people i think i sense what most people are interested in is joining a community where they are going to live for something larger than themselves and maybe mm -hmm. eight out of ten people don't even know that consciously that's just something that i suspect is a part of that our human nature that we want to be a part of something that feels larger than us so we can devote ourselves to a mission that extends beyond even our lifetimes potentially and that has an impact on um, generations to come and if we can frame our communities as these perhaps living laboratories that can um, catalyze new ways of being and picking something specific because you know, even as community in Bali that I'm working on, one of the struggles is that they want to be sort of a little bit of everything for everyone. And maybe maybe they can pull it off, but what I'm um, encouraging them to do is to really sink into one or two or three core principles, core mission statements that will um, really attract a certain type of person um, so that there can be a sense of community cohesion that everyone feels like they're there um, on you know on the same team working towards the same goal and what i what i learned from startups is that you need to know what you do but you also need to be really clear on what you're not doing right or what your mission is not. exactly exactly then you explode things so that's that's cool so the conflict resolution system the strong principles and what's kind of the third uh key to thriving community yeah I'm really enjoying these questions, Jasper. This is how you're doing a great job interviewing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I what I, I would say in strategy consulting, in, in strategy consulting, I learned this, this a little bit. Okay. Yeah. What I would say a third principle is, and, and this is something maybe that I strongly desire in my own life is um, to be in a community where there's certain ceremonies and rituals and rites of passages and celebrations of life and they can look in so many different ways um, but you know why do people even want to live together in general is it just so we can you know um, 
be in our little silos on our laptops all day, but physically closer to one another. No, I don't think so. I think we want to live in community so that we can go through experiences together and we can feel that collective, you know, presence and we space that is between us. So we can not just be individuals, but we can also be a group and a family and a tribe um, that is that is celebrating the miracle of being a fucking alive. I mean, what a gift that we're alive. And even when shit is hitting the fan, that's even more of a reason to celebrate. Even when all hell is breaking loose, that's even more of a reason to play and to feel joy and to smile because what a gift, you know? It's like, it's, it's the suffering and tension in life that allows us to, to grow, to change, to, to evolve. And um, so I think, you know, times are so serious now. You turn on the news and there's these awful shootings that are happening. There's existential crises. There's um, just, you know, the global economy, the war in Ukraine, the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to get sucked into this darkness, into this feeling of why, why are we even alive? Like, <laughs> there's, there's no joy in life. And I think if we're going to solve the existential crises, we need to experience joy and play and laughter and ecstasy and bliss to remind ourselves why life is so precious and why it's even worth protecting and helping and trying to save in the first place. Um, really- and communities can be such a beautiful way to do that, to, to be with your brothers and sisters and dancing and crying and um, staying up all night and going through really intense transformative experiences, there's, there's something that energetically brings people together and creates a sense of depth and intimacy that um, is very rarely felt in the, in the larger modern world. I really uh, enjoyed the ceremony and celebration aspect in Pachamama, where you have mm-hmm. these two like, mystical music journeys with like 100 people. And then I realized that outside communities, yeah, this, this is kind of lacking. Um, but this is really fascinating because you've been to 25 communities out of the people I know. Uh, you're really the community person. And uh, these three principles, I hope they can help others uh, if you're listening, if you're considering creating a community. Um, so in your transformation, we discussed grief, vision path, psychedelics, development of psychology communities. Is this it? Uh, also relating to your school? Is this it or is there more? Well, well there's, a, there's a lot. No problem. Uh, there's a dog that's saying hello to me. Ah, it's very well. Um, then another path would be meditation retreats. So I've done six, um, 60 days of silent meditation retreats at four different, um, four different retreat centers. One was Spirit Rock in California, where Jack Cornfield teaches. That's a Theravada Buddhism center. Uh, another is Pachamama, which is based off Osho, Osho uh, dynamic meditations, which are very different physical embodied practices of catharsis and ecstasy. Um, really, really fun. And then uh, Monastic Academy, which is a, a Zen monastery in Vermont. It's a Zen inspired monastery. And that is very intense. It's basically like a, a military boot camp for enlightenment. And then finally, Herdaya yoga which is um they have a center in mexico and a center in france that i've been to and they are a very bhakti heart-centered devotional um, kind of combining a lot of christian mysticism with sufism and also ramana maharishi self-inquiry practices so these silent retreats have been 
just extraordinarily powerful. Each one has completely ripped me open and <laughs> torn me a new one and, um, and assembled me anew. Um, yeah, I can, I'm curious if you have any questions around that. Yeah, I mean, um, so I've done one vipassana uh, and I, it has been powerful because we're so used to talking in society where it's actually being silent, this kind of neutral state. So in a way, it's surprising that a lot more people uh, do this. Um, I'm, my question is, do you, as you're accumulating these experiences, do they build on each other and do they help you grow? Or is it like, um, is it like a variety of experiences or do you feel you go deeper through doing more of it? Hmm. I would say yes to all of that. Yes, there's both a way. There's both a way in which I can look back, you know, in this present moment and string a series of events together to say that there's been some evolutionary unfolding of the life of Tucker. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there's just in my lived experience, there's just this moment right here, right now, and so what is arising are 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 these, um, you know, these little fractals of memories of these experiences. And in each moment, a different memory or a different feeling, a different thought about the past will arise in the present moment. And yeah, to me, it's they're 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 each so individual. They're they're each so unique, and at the same time, they're all part of this larger unfolding. I think it's both ends. Yeah, no, but that's um, um, it's it's really powerful that you're actually. Uh, doing all of this because a lot of people that want to do it but they don't make time for it right but it looks like you've prioritized this and then uh, yeah you, you it's a matter of priority i, I don't know if that's the, if the question is clear but i think some people are so busy and then they say oh i don't have time to be silent so how do you feel this like <laughs> creating time for this hmm. Yeah. I would just give people a warning and say, if you're going to do a 10 day silent retreat, uh, it's going to radically change your life. <laughs> so oh, <wow. laughs> if, if you're ready, if you're ready for that, then you'll find the time. The universe will find the time for you. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. If you're not ready for that, then, you know, give it a year, maybe, Keep it on the back burner of your psyche and when the when the seed is ready to sprout it, it will i'm not worried about it so it's more about being ready than about uh, having the time well i really uh, enjoyed listening to all these categories about your transformation uh, journey and i think we have enough categories for now but during mm -hmm. the developmental psychology wake up grow up clean up shop you talked about mission and in the communities you also talked about mission so what is actually your your quest in life or your purpose or your mission? How do you frame that? Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot that I could say. And what's arising right now is that 
in this moment, my mission is just to be fully present and honest and vulnerable and uh, to be as much of a clear vessel as I can um, for you, for whoever's listening to this podcast, to just show up fully and to be an open book um, and to just allow the words that are coming out of my mouth to come out of my mouth. You know, not really, I haven't, I haven't planned anything that I've really said on this call. It's all just somewhat flowing through me. And so in some ways, it's my purpose. It's my mission. Uh, in another way, it's more like, how can th the purpose of Tucker be lived through this present moment experience? And how can I actually just step back and allow what wants to unfold to unfold as, uh, I don't know, organically or effortlessly, effortlessly as possible? So it's a little bit of a paradox because, yeah, there was a lot of work that I've done to come into this sense of um, what is what are my my gifts what can I offer to the world and there's three words that I've really boiled that down to and I actually have it I got it tattooed <laughs> it's funny the tattoos <laughs> keep coming up but I got it tattooed on my uh, left arm when I was in Bali last month uh, by Irina who Jasper and I know mm -hmm. and it says seeing seeing synthesizing storytelling and so seeing, seeing I feel seeing story. synthesizing storytelling so seeing, um, you know, I think there's a very clear thread from the photography and documentary work that I've been doing and then uh, going on the healing and transformation journey and really seeing into my soul, seeing into my psyche, seeing um, God and seeing the different perspectives of this developmental psychology work, seeing all these different intentional communities and really just seeing everything that the universe presents to me. And then synthesizing it is the, the, the map maker in me, the one that is taking all these different experiences from all these different places, both internally, you know, and, and different dimensions of reality through plant medicine journeys and different countries and cultures from different travels, different traditions, different lineages, different healing modalities and practices, and weaving it all together into a story. And that story in its simplest form is, is the story of my life. It's the story that I've been sharing with you over the past hour or so. It's the story that is living through me each moment, um, each breath of air, each, each, each present moment that just is this constant unfolding. Yeah, I really like that. And I think through your honesty and openness and vulnerability, you, you help people to open up and to, to help them grow. I can clearly see that. And related to storytelling, Anna, do you have some time left for some more some more questions? Yeah, totally. Because uh, so we really talked about your a bit about your childhood, your life as a film director, and your transformation to where you are now. Also, a bit communities and learning. But about storytelling, there are two projects that are really um, uh, found intriguing. So one is the Vote for Us project, and the other is the We Trump Hate project, uh, where you seem to be a bit involved in politics. So can you share? about those projects and why you got involved and what it meant to you? Sure. Vote for Us was a project for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm -hmm. And my friend, Jonathan Ollinger had been doing some work for the Sanders campaign and was asked to make this video, or maybe he came up with the idea himself. He reached out to Saul Williams, who's this just extraordinarily talented, um, slam poet and singer and artist and he recorded this script with Saul 
in Los Angeles, I believe. And then we went to a Bernie Sanders rally that was happening in Washington Square Park, New York City. And we filmed all these portraits of all the diverse Americans that had showed up there and created this manifesto, this, this, this anthem that to me was you know, one of the projects that really touched me the most. I was a huge Bernie Sanders fan. <laughs> and um, it really, yeah, that video went pretty viral and um, was, was shared a lot online. And, and the Hillary Clinton campaign actually saw it and they reached out to me and they said, <laughs> this is really funny actually, they said, we want to create a video that is cool and hip like the one that you did for Bernie. But the thing is, if we put a Hillary Clinton logo at the end of it, no one is going to watch it and it's going to be discredited. So what we want to do is to hire you to make a video for us, but we want you to just put it out under your personal name and on your personal social media sites and then Hillary Clinton will share it so that that way it doesn't look like it's coming from the official campaign. <laughs> and so um, that's what we did. I, I got together a team of volunteers and this is after Bernie had already dropped out of the race and um, made this video called We Trump Hate. And Sam, my partner at the time, she actually wrote the script for it. We wrote it together. It was this really beautiful uh, I mean, I find it <laughs> very beautiful, but this, yeah, this inspiring sort of call to action to, to have everyone rally around Hillary Clinton. Um, and we whipped together that project in just a few days. It was, uh, it was a lot of work and it was all, all volunteers. And that project ended up being shared by Cory Booker and a bunch of celebrities and Hillary Clinton shared the link from my personal Facebook page. So it was super cool. And I actually was invited to go to the Hillary Clinton rally. Uh, it was supposed to be her victory rally, but of course she didn't win. And I was on stage right where she was supposed to come out and give her acceptance speech. Um, and then, you know, that she ended up didn't, they didn't know the results of the election yet. And she didn't give the speech until the next morning. Um, but everyone in the room could just, it felt like a mass funeral. It felt the closest thing I could compare it to was after 9-11, where it just felt like, um, something tragic and horrific had just happened. And there were thousands of people that were just in shock. They were mm. crying. The whole city really felt like it was in a sense of disarray, like a zombie apocalypse had just taken over. And that was, that was one of those, that was also a very transformative moment when Trump won. Uh, I was expecting he would win. I, I was kind of in, in the Michael Moore, Bernie Sanders camp that was saying, you know, don't underestimate Trump and these um, middle-class, you know, white uh, voters that are really angry and, and outraged. And so I wasn't necessarily surprised that he won, but I think to me, it was a wake-up call that our society was undergoing a big moment of transformational change. And uh, I knew that I needed to first go through that change internally before I could help um, my wider culture and society also make that shift. And that's um, so cool that you use your, your film talents for uh, political uh, campaigns and to share a certain message. And how do you, how does the process look like? Because you're talking about seeing synthesis storytelling. Like how the hell do you start when you create such a video? Because it's, it's a broad assignment, right? Yeah. Are you talking about one of them in particular? Uh, for instance, we Trump hate. Like, like how do you start the, this creative process? Do you quickly have an idea in mind or do you interview a lot of people? How does that work? 
Well, with We Trump Hate, I knew that I wanted to write a manifesto and I knew that whatever I could write would be better than what the Hillary Clinton campaign could write because their ads were not so good or they were at least just not targeting the young millennials that were Bernie voters. You know, all, when Bernie dropped out, it was a big question as to whether how many of his supporters would vote for Hillary Clinton. And my job was to get those Bernie Sanders voters that were still on the fence onto the Clinton campaign and to ensure that they got out and voted. And so I wrote this script with Sam and we just sat there lying on our bed together and we went through it line by line and it just kind of flowed out of us. Uh, you know, I think we spent one, one night writing it. Um, and from there, we, I called on a bunch of my friends and we just uh, filmed different people on the street and we had them read certain lines of the film to camera. So, and then we brought these people back into our re recording studio and we had them read the script out loud and we created this chorus of voices. So it felt like the video was being, um, the, the, the message was being recited by an ensemble of diverse Americans that represented all these different backgrounds and walk of, walks of life. And so it was a while ago now, you know, that was 2015, 2016. So I, I can't really recall the details, but my memory is that it came together somewhat effortlessly and just kind yeah. of flowed out of us. So it starts with a, with a script, it flows out of you, but you wanted to target a certain population that maybe they could have reached earlier because they were for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. And um, how is it for you? Because you've experienced in working with some of like giant names like these presidential candidates, but also with Al Gore and, and Lionel Messi, the soccer player, and Jessica Alba. Like, how is that? work with them does that still or at that time like like was it kind of crazy to do that or does it become so normal that you even forget they're so well known no i mean i i never forgot how well known they were with with leo messi they apparently the previous commercial that he did he walked out in the middle of the set because he wasn't happy with how things were going and um, everyone was freaking out. And so that I went into it knowing he might do the same thing to us. And uh, so it, but he ended up being so friendly and so nice and really just kind of humble and quiet and down to earth. And he even stayed a few minutes longer to answer some of my questions and was really gracious. So it went really well, but for sure I was nervous and, you know, I had to put, my job is to put my nerves behind me and to talk to them just like they're a human being, which obviously they are, um, and to find the humanity that is beneath the veneer of their celebrity status. With Jessica Alba, uh, just a quick, really funny story is that I grew up uh, in, as a kid, maybe from, I don't know, 10 to 18 years old, I had this poster of Jessica Alba. It was a Sin City poster, one of the movies she was in, and she's wearing, you know, lingerie and she's super sexy and I, that poster was in my bedroom and it was the first thing I would look at because it was like right in front of my bed every morning when I, went, when I woke up. And um, little did I know that a decade or 15 years later, I would be in her office, um, you know, sitting across from her and telling her about my film proposal. And then she wanted me to test out this bubble soap product that she was making for Honest Company. And we are washing our hands together and talking about the quality of the soap. And I was just like, 
wow, if only my younger self knew this, he would have been so excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. It's like your your childhood dreams suddenly become reality. Yeah, exactly. My child it was more like a childhood fantasy. I mean, she is gorgeous. There's not a, a there's not a pore on her body that is flawless. <laughs> oh, that's so so cool. And um, I don't know. This is a question that I'm I'm also curious about. Like, what do you feel? What qualities brought you to that level? I mean, you showed you you shared that you were fascinated by photography. You were researching everything when you were young. You probably have good people skills. You report people as humans. But like, what's your what qualities brought you there? Um, I'm sure people will be curious to to learn about that. Mm. Or qualities or mindset, you know, or approach. Yeah, my first reaction is that you should ask um, everyone else around me because I don't know. I almost feel like maybe I'm not as aware of some some of that. I'm not as aware as how I show up as maybe others would be. Um, I mean, as that one Enneagram to tie it back to, to that, uh, that's the perfectionist. And I, yeah, I had this obsessive, very, very, very driven, determined, hardworking, uh, perfectionist. I had OCD uh, <laughs> that sometimes was a little bit debilitating but sometimes it was also a gift as well because i would like double check and triple check and quadruple check everything and stay up all night long you know editing a video until six in the morning um multiple nights in a row so i, I just i worked my ass off i guess is, is one quality mm-hmm. <laughs> that's uh, good another quality is i really cared like i really felt that the work I was doing, even if it was a JC Penny commercial to sell fucking towels or something like that, I still cared. I, I never checked out. You know, you hear about some of these um, film directors that have been kind of burnt down and they sort of check out and are going through the motions. And for me, I, I, I luckily never got to that point. I, I always felt like what I was doing really mattered and had an impact on if, if nothing else, at least the very pe- the people I was around, you know, my crew members, the actors I was working with. Um, and I really wanted to make the world a better place. You know, that was, uh, that was my mission. I did have that strong sense of wanting to make an impact and make a difference and realizing how privileged I was growing up uh, in an upper middle class family, going to private schools, being able to travel internationally at a very young age. Um, having the privilege of knowing, you know, falling in love with a career, with a, with a, with a tool that would help bring me a lot of financial success. And so I really wanted to use my gifts to help give back to others. And I think that helped me push through to an extent that actually ended up hurting me uh, the later part of my career because I, I just, I went too far and I got too burnt down and I wasn't taking care of myself and it all kind of collapsed on my face. I can imagine, yeah. So to summarize, you worked hard, you really cared. You had this perfectionist, like OCD type of style, and you really wanted to make the world a better place. And at some point, it was it was too much. And now I'm curious because now you've transformed to a new version of you. Uh, maybe you will still work in film. You work with community. Do you still have this longing to work at, let's say, a world class level that you used to work, but then in a different field? Or, or did that longing disappear? 
Do I still? Whatever, like, do you still have this longing to work at the highest level, whatever, whatever the definition of that is, or did that longing disappear through your transformation? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, I, there's two two different answers I have that are rising. Um, I would say my dream right now, when I close my eyes and I. I I fantasize about my future. Um, it's no longer about meeting Jessica Alba, and it's it's much more actually about making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my kids before they get onto the school bus, and um, sitting and having a really cozy cup of tea and looking into my lover's eyes and just feeling tears well up because I I have so much love and devotion for uh, you know these these people that I've devoted and dedicated my life to. Um, so it's really much more about those simple aspects of life. Uh, at the same time, if my work in the world, um, if the universe wants it to be experienced or seen or discovered by a large number of people and it brings me onto um, a higher level stage or a more publicly, a more public place, then I, I totally welcome that and invite that. It's really, um, I'm at, I'm at, I've dedicated my life to, to God really. And to, I, I use that word God a, a lot I've noticed, but my point is that, um, I'm, I'm here for the ride wherever it takes me. Yeah. That's a, you're surrendering to, to the ride wherever it takes you. That's beautiful. Sad. And you're enjoying nowadays more the simple things of life and maybe, uh, um, yeah. That's yeah, and it's and but it's simple. It's simple, but it's not simple. Also, like first of all, having a kid is not simple, right? As uh, from what every parent has ever told me, it's it's very much not simple. But it also, from a spiritual perspective, I would say the greatest test, right? Like, can I maintain peace and equanimity? at four in the morning when my toddler is crying and I haven't slept in two days and I'm grumpy, you know, like, can I show up as my, can I show up as the person that I want to be in that moment? Yeah. And for me, it feels like that is, that is the work. That is where the karma that I'm still holding on to. That's where my attachments, that's where the shadows that I have will, will come out most uh, um, dramatically, perhaps, is is in those kind of simple, intimate moments that are actually can be quite challenging. But how do you view potential fatherhood? I mean, we're both men in our thirties. Uh, some some men have children early on. Like like, how do you view fatherhood? Is it something you you want, or or or, or yeah, how, how do you view that possibility, so to say? Yeah, I really do. I really I really want to be a, a father. I have this vision, this dream of playing basketball in the driveway with my son or daughter, and and just the sun is setting, the, the birds are out, and it's like this beautiful August evening, and yeah, we're just laughing, and I'm tickling, you know, him or her, and just it's basically a, a replication of the moment that I had with my with my dad on so many days when I was growing up and I want nothing else than to than to share and to pass on the gift of those precious moments to my own children.
Um, I think that would be just such a an honor <laughs> to be able to have that opportunity. That that's beautiful. I um, I hope that that's in store for you. We will see in the future. Thank you. Thank yes, future and um, yeah, I really am enjoying this uh, conversation. And maybe my next question is like: Is there a topic that we didn't talk about that is important to you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, we've placed so much emphasis on transformation, which is a beautiful topic that is near and dear to my heart and very, you know, all good. But I would say some of the, ironically, some of the most catalyzing transformation came from just fully accepting right here, right now, however it's arising. So maybe I'm totally triggered and pissed off and showing up as my worst self. And, you know, the whole world seems gray and everything is just, I feel totally lost and have no sense of what I want to do. And like, if I can find just a little bit of distance and just witness that unfolding and just let go, just, just laugh, like, oh, wow, now this is happening. Oh, well, like, uh, you know, I've been here before. I know this too shall pass. This too shall transform. And then more often than not, that helps that moment pass. And, um, and so I would say, yeah, one of the paradoxes of life is that the more we can let go and surrender, the more uh, the flow can take us to wherever it's meant to, to, to go. I think that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful wisdom. And um, yeah, maybe as as uh, as we're, we're we're nearing the closing of, of the podcast, like what type of book or or film do you recommend people to read or or, or watch? I know it's a classical mm. podcast, but it's it's valuable. Yeah. Well, on the communities front, there's two books that I read when I was still with Sam and living in LA. Um, and very much still, you know, feeling in the midst of my depression. One is called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Mm -hmm. It's a book about, uh, actually the first part of the book is about antidepressants and which is very interesting science and research about uh, antidepressants and their effectiveness. But most of the book is about communities and it's about the loneliness, uh, addiction, depression, academic, anxiety, epidemic that is plaguing the Western world. And, and Johan Hari does years of research studying why this is happening and, and what some of the solutions are. And community is a big community and a sense of connection is um, you know, the, the main topics that he explores. And another book along those lines is called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. And Tribe looks at the different ways that humans come together. Uh, and basically one of, the, one of the chapters is about veterans who experience PTSD. And you know, most people that think veterans who experience PTSD probably saw their friend be blown up by a grenade or was it, were in some you know, horrific uh, front lines action. But most people that come back from serving with PTSD actually never even saw the front lines of war. And Sebastian Younger is wondering, like, why is this? What is going on? And what he realized is that most 
people felt PTSD because they had this they had this mission that they they had a sense of purpose they had a brotherhood that they were serving with they had their tribe and then when they were home just in their suburban homes all by themselves you know with nothing to do maybe with a kind of a dead end job they felt this the uh, a lack of worth and uh, they felt no sense of connection no sense of that 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 tribe that you know humans for most 99% of human history lived in these small communities these small tribes it's really only in the last 2-300 years that we've lived in this modern way uh now with the internet in the past couple of decades we've become even more disconnected than ever before so it is it's a really uh, short book people could probably read it in a single day uh, but it completely completely changed my life wow that's that's beautiful yeah you're definitely experienced in in tribes and and communities and um i i see more people being interested in that so that's a great recommendation and when i listen to your story you you've had an incredible variety of experiences related to personal and spiritual development and at the same time you mentioned that you had some savings but not everyone in the world has savings so some people could say it's also very privileged to be able to do all of those things um so what's your opinion on that this is only for a privileged few or that everyone can access such a journey of transformation and if so how can people do it without having these savings yeah i think that the story that it's only for the privileged is true if you're looking at it from a very narrow perspective and and i would also warn people that that can be one of the ego ego's greatest tricks to stay in its way you know oh i don't have savings so i can't do a meditation retreat well actually vipassana retreats are completely free um people can go without and not spend uh, a single dollar and can have an 10 day meditation retreat allen on meetings aa meetings 12 step meetings are completely free um there's many different types of therapists out there that are can work for very low rates uh all of these things like animus valley vision quest um a lot of the different trainings I've done they all have scholarships available and you know it's still challenging and um you know it doesn't there's only a limited number of scholarships but still it is possible and a lot of these communities pachamama for example people go with very little money and they do work exchange programs and they're able to live for months at these transformational centers and um and spend very little money in exchange for working a few hours a day in the kitchen or doing gardening work um displaced monastic academy that I was just down in Vermont you can live completely for free as an apprentice um in exchange for a 3 month commitment so I yeah, really like, again I would say really like, I would just No, oh, so, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just I would invite I I just want to emphasize absolutely I've been extremely privileged and I've been able to do things that 99.9% of people will never get to do and I recognize that and one of my purposes and missions and you know deepest desires is to bring some of these transformational experiences back uh to America and into our local communities so that everyone can have greater access to them and mm-hmm. at the same time i would just warn people that your ego might be just be playing games with you and creating stories that aren't actually true and to um yeah 
live under the mindset that transformation is possible. You know, some of the most dramatic transformational stories I've ever heard of are people that have been arrested and uh, spent, you know, months or years or even decades in jail and had extremely transformative experiences and came out of prison and ended up being community leaders in their, um, you know, back in their local communities where they came from. So transformation happens for all walks of life, for all income levels, for all people, for all places, for all traditions, for all cultures. It's happening all the time everywhere. And if you believe that it can't happen to you because of your finances, then I would say you're fooling yourself. I really like that answer. So people can also use it as excuses. And it's great to hear that there are a lot of like free or affordable uh, places to go. And um, I feel I can keep on talking with you, but maybe we should end it at some point. So <laughs> you're the second one I'm talking to. The first one was a model turned sound healer. We talked about non-duality sound and breath. You're yeah, cool. my Yes, uh, but it has been a lot about like your transformation and 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 um, and film and surrendering and trust and letting go. Uh, but what's your advice for me going forward for this podcast? Yeah, you've now been the guest. Do you have some some feedback, some ideas uh, that you want to share with mm. me for the Soul Kitchen? Yeah, I feel like you asked great question. What I felt was that this really flowed. So I would say a response, and then you would find some little kernel that piqued your interest and then we'd go down that path and then go down another path and it, i really felt like i was just riding this wave with you so um yeah good great i felt really trusted in your in your care and um i felt like you're a really beautiful listener very attentive i thought you did a really great job of recapping some of my answers and um boiling it down to the the, the core essence so i don't think i have any direct feedback for you what I would say is to uh, invite your audience that is still listening, if you're if you're still with us, to maybe share some feedback directly with Jasper. Um, somehow, I don't know, Jasper, if you have an email or some way for people to contact you. But I think that would be great for the audience to help shape your podcast, and so that people, yeah, people can really get as much value in this as possible. That's While also trusting Jasper that you. You know, if you're getting value from it, it's almost a sure guarantee that others are. So if you feel good about it, then, you know, trust that as well. That's that's great advice. I'm even forgetting that people are listening because it feels like I'm <laughs> with this conversation. It's and, all an um, illusion, man. Nobody else is listening. It's just us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your feedback. And I'm also curious, like, uh, for future guests, like, who will be a guest that you really would like to listen to? either someone that you personally know or even someone that you don't personally know? Mm, the first person that comes to mind is Irina Demchenko. Oh, who, Irina. Yeah, she is, I mean, I'm um, the most biased person in the world because I am her number one fanboy and also past and potentially future romantic partner. Um, <laughs> but she is this very... I've never, I've never met anyone like her. I've never met anyone like her. She's just extraordinary. She has this way of walking into a room and within saying one or two words, she'll just completely transform people and draw people in. She'll know the perfect, she's like a masterclass coach that has absolutely no coaching background or experience. It just comes naturally to her. Um, and I've been so blessed to know her and I feel like she also is in the midst of a really powerful 
healing and transformation journey and it might be a very potent time to catch up with her and see how her path is unfolding that's that's a great suggestion so thank you for sharing that and for your openness so i will ask her um so i met her also in in, in costa rica and uh, we, we were in a jungle jungle party and um, <laughs> we were also we we're also both emfps in the mbpi so um very creative but that's a great suggestion i will ask her if she's available and uh, i want to thank you for this uh this great conversation i learned a lot from your story and uh, really surrendering trusting and letting go and um yeah i'd like to follow your adventures around the world in, in your community and um, thank you for being here thank you brother it's been a beautiful joy and um, for anyone else that is listening i feel free to reach out anytime i have a website tuckerlighthouse.com i do offer some coaching services i've been backburnering that a little bit as my plate's been full with this developmental psychology training programs that i'm in currently um, but for sure does anyone please reach out i have some essays on medium as well as that list of transformational communities um, that I, has been very i think helpful for many people so happy to yeah answer any questions and guide people uh, in any way that might be helpful so, so you do one-on-one -on -one coaching with people, right? Yep. Yes. Excellent. That, that's great to know. Yeah. So if people are interested in, um, in in knowing more of Tucker or going on a transformation journey, indeed reach out. And um, I hope to see you next time, <laughs> next episode. <laughs> Sounds good, Jasper. Thank you so much. See much you love. Time.